it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 684 for May 15th, 2021, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth 116 of X. How are you today, Bart? Yes. I am grand, having been the wettest I have been in years, but uh, yeah, I'm not made of salt. I'll recover. <laughs> My mother always says, what are you worried about? We'll dry. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I do like to say there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothes. But I I put a bit too much stay in the uh, weather forecaster's opinion on what might happen. He was wrong. Uh oh. Uh, I did not have the right clothes. But anyway, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You're dry now. I'm dry now. Yes, indeed. I've had a few hours. I've had a nice dinner. I've had a nice dessert. So I'm fine. And I have a big mug of coffee right now this second. So all is well. Very good. Very good. Well, what are we going to talk about today? Today is um, a bit of a philosophical episode. So when we started off our discussion of Git, I said we were going to go on a journey together and we were going to start with the simplest possible scenario, which is one single repository. And we were going to learn how to operate on that repository. And we spent easily 80% of our Git time just on a single repository because ultimately that gives us all of the important stuff, you know, the making a commit, making branches, merging branches, resolving merge commits, tagging, all that stuff works just fine on a single repository. So we, you know, we spent a lot of time on one repository. And then recently, in the last few installments, we started to branch out a bit and we expanded our scenario to be a lone developer with initially one computer and one pretend NAS. And you had like a a backup version that was safe from your computer. And then we said, well, why don't you have two computers and the NAS? So then you have, you know, you sharing multiple repositories, but it's still just the one you. Well, the next scenario on the list was a team of people working together. And then the last scenario is open source. So contributing to the broader open source community. So today we're going to look at the third of those. And technologically, it is identical to what we did last time. Sharing between you and multiple computers is the same as other people on multiple computers technologically. There's going to be one repository sitting in the middle somewhere that's hosted somewhere everyone can access it. If you're in some sort of corporate environment, it could even be on an actual NAS. Or it could be on a server sitting somewhere with SSH enabled, and you just have a bare repository, and then you can access it over SSH. Or it could be on some sort of cloud service, be it a free, paid, whatever, some sort of cloud-hosted Git. But as long as there's one repository all of you can access, you then clone it to your personal computer or computers and you work away. So technologically, you know, Allison on Allison's desktop and Allison on Allison's laptop is actually no different to Bart on a desktop and Allison on a laptop. Okay. Right? It's just... I guess, a more forgetful version of yourself. One of you doesn't know what the other of you is doing, but other than that, it's actually the same scenario. Well, that still sounds like me in both cases, but all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find myself being very similar to, to working with a stranger too sometimes. <laughs> so there's no actual new technology to learn today. There's no new commands to learn. But if you would like the experience of working as a team to go smoothly, you do actually have to do a little bit of thinking about it because coordinating with yourself is theoretically straightforward, even if I sometimes have trouble keeping in tune with myself. <laughs> you know, it is at least an easier task than getting multiple human beings on the same page as each other. 
so ultimately today is just helping helping you to think about how to work together effectively with git as your tool because git isn't you know git is a fantastic tool but it's not a utopia it's not going to suddenly stop you being a human being like you know humans working together are still humans working together and it doesn't matter what tool you give them um before we go too deep i want to double underline something which i think we have said using many 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 words but i'd like to to just clear it up a little bit and that's just to to underline the difference between a fetch and a pull okay i i have started so, to get the hang of this and it and once you explained it the first time that was a big penny drop light bulb on moment that i understood some stuff that was happening that i didn't that before was like where'd that come from oh good so when you add a remote to your repository, you take a cache of everything on the remote down to your local machine, into your repository. And then effectively you have locally the remote branches and the local branches. So a fetch just means update my cache. A pull means take the commits that are on that remote branch I just fetched and merge them into my local branch. A pull is a merge. Oh, I hadn't thought about that way. Okay. Which means if you are going to get a merge conflict, you are going to get a merge conflict when you pull, not when you fetch. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Let me give an illustration to the audience of this, of the fetch thing that just happened today. So Bart does the show notes in, uh, in Git and uh, he creates a work in progress version of the show notes. So it's PBS116-WIP. And, which is on uh, a branch. Which is on a branch. Uh, thank you. And so when I opened up Git Kraken today to go get the notes, before I did anything, I could see PBS116-WIP. But wait a minute. I haven't pulled. How come I can see it? I didn't pull. But I could see Correct. a little down arrow next to it with an eight. And that told me <laughs> that whatever, maybe I would have could have had PBS116-WIP, but it had been changed. In this case, I didn't even have it. So one of those num one of those numbered changes was its very existence. But it wasn't yes. until I double clicked on that branch and said pull, then it did the merge, and those that number eight disappeared. So now I know I'm in sync with what it was at the instant I did that. And if Bart were to now go change the show notes on on his computer push it up to uh to the server i would suddenly see a one next to my pbs 116 whip even though i haven't pulled it is that right correct that is i never understood any of that before because what git kraken is doing for you is it's fetching it's basically constantly fetching when you have the ui in focus that's cool yes and so that's to say that is important so a fetch just get updates the cache the pull merges the changes into the local branch. Okay. So that's, if you're going to have a conflict, it's going to be when you do the pull. And Never there's pulls on the different branches too, because I was on master and I pulled and I went, wait, nothing happened. Oh, that's right. I need to double click on the, uh, I, on the, the whip branch, pull again. And that's when it did the merge. Correct. Because master is tracking origin slash master mm -hmm. and whip 116 is tracking with 116. Right, right. Origin slash with 116. Right. So 
if all right, now the more human beings you have working on stuff, the more likelihood you have of merge conflicts. But remember, we spent the entirety of installment 110 teaching you not to fear merge conflict. They are perfectly handleable. They are perfectly fine. There are no need to stress. So if you ever need a refresher on how not to stress about merge conflicts, PBS 110 is your friend. All right. And I haven't hit a merge conflict since you taught us that. We'll see whether I can uh, keep my keep a cool head when I see one, because I normally go, ah, no, it's horrible. And I, this is never going to work. I'm going to break something. Yeah. But remember, we can always just roll back. So it's OK to break things and get yeah. roll back. All right. So you say. That's the whole point is we're capturing the full history as we go. So it really does take away the fear. Just just go for it. Maybe I should think about it the way I remember trying to teach people in the old days what a wiki was, that it was okay to change. I'm going to write something. It is fine with me if you change it. And people would always make notes in the comments saying, can you change this? It's like, no, you can do it. No, I don't want to break your stuff. It's like, no, I can push this little button right here. It says roll back. Yeah. And even in Word, like you turn on track changes and then you can stop stressing about, oh, will someone take offense if I delete their comma? Well, if they take offense, they can roll it back. Yeah. Okay, so with that just little refresher on fetch and pull. So if you want to work as a team, you need to have, really the only requirement is that you have a place to store your Git repository that everyone on the team can access. And after that, it becomes a human problem. All you really have to do is coordinate with each other so as to avoid chaos. So the techie part of that is actually really quite straightforward. The bit that you should spend way more time on is uh, all of the um, human bits around the technology. So our mental model is basically the same as what we described last time. There is one repository sitting on a server, which we have decided is the primary repository. It's not technologically different. It's just the one we have decided is the centerpiece of our infrastructure. And everyone who develops on this code is going to clone that central repository to their development computer. They're going to make their changes on their local repository, and then they're going to push their changes up to the shared repository. And everyone is going to pull everyone else's changes from shared repository. All right. Makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, we can knock the technical stuff of the head really quite quickly. So, okay, we need somewhere to stick our Git repository. What are our choices? Well, really, the sky is the limit. So, there are so many different options, and they all have different advantages and disadvantages for different people. So, some of them will give you just Git and nothing but Git. And some of them will give you these amazing more bells and whistles than you could even conceive of existing. Hmm. Some of them will take you two seconds to set up, and some of them will take you two sysadmins for a day. Some of them are completely free. Some of them will cost you an arm, a leg, and another arm. You know, really, anything's possible. So there is no right answer. The only thing is there there is bound to be a good answer for what you need. Whoever okay. you are, in whatever context you are, there is, a, there is a right answer for you. But it's going to be different for every group. So just to whet your appetite and, and the possibilities, the most straightforward thing you could do, if you're working as a small team somewhere in a small company, you just have, you initialize a bare Git repository on a NAS drive. Everyone mounts that NAS drive into their local file system, and everyone can then add that centralized repository using a simple file path. 
just like we were doing in our testing right, or in our right. demonstration. So you could do you that with your Synology at home. Exactly, or in a small office. Right? Mm-hmm. Those Synologies are just as comfortable in a small office environment as they are in a home environment. Right. If you want to set things up a little bit, you can get a $5 a month VM from DigitalOcean or Linode or whoever, uh, run a very, very basic copy of Linux that has the Git repo, the, the Git binary installed and SSH installed, which it will have installed anyway, because otherwise you could never connect to your cloud server. Oh, that's and kind of fun. Just five bucks a month, you could do that easily, right? Very easy, right? Do they have like little droplets to just say, I just want Git? Well, no, but any Linux distribution, right? If it's Debian-based, it's going to be app, to, app, get, install, Git. And if it's Red Hat-based, it's going to be yum, install, Git. But that's it. Like, it's going to be in the standard okay. package manager for your defin- for your version of Linux. Okay. So okay. then you just do a Git init minus minus bear. Mm-hmm. And then you just SSH, use the SSH code on slash slash URL, and you're away. Okay. That's it. That's all there is to it. So, I mean, they're two very darn easy options. If you'd like to have the odd bell and or whistle, then you can go and get the community edition of GitLab. And GitLab is basically an alternative to GitHub, um, which is an o- which is both an open source project and software as a service. Okay. So they will sell you a hosted version which on their infrastructure, which is stupendously robust. And in fact, there are free packages even on their infrastructure. Uh, but they also release the community edition, as they call it, which is basically the open source version that their fancy pants version is based off. So you can download the source code for GitLab and install it on your own VM. You might need a $10 a month one for that. It might need a little bit more RAM or whatever, but it's, you know, it's not be a huge thing. And the installer for GitLab is fairly reasonable, actually. Um, you can put it on a Raspberry Pi. GitLab on a Raspberry Pi, wow. Yeah, yeah. Ubuntu, Debian, CentOS 7 and 8, OpenSUSE, and Raspberry Pi. Ha, huh. cool. Oh, well, I know Ed Tobias is going to do this. Yeah. So then you basically have a private GitHub which is actually not as useful as it sounds because kind of one of the big features of GitHub is that it's not private. But okay. we'll, we'll get there next week. And then there is the obvious answer is to uh, borrow someone else's infrastructure. So there are free and paid for packages on a whole raft of cloud-hosted Git as a service offerings. Just off the top of my head, there are three very obvious leading contenders here. The elephant in the room is definitely GitHub. Uh, If you want to work as a team, you want a GitHub organization, which is how this very podcast is presented to you. I created a free organization called Bartificer Creations, and I added myself, Alison, Helma, uh, Dorothy. I think that's it. I think it's just the four of us in there. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of us are a member of the team, which means all of us can contribute to the code. Or I say code. It can be text. Right. Uh, You know, whatever it is we're versioning. Uh, And we just work away. And that's an entirely free tier uh, from GitHub to do that. Uh, You have free accounts. Uh, I have free. I actually, I pay for an account because I want to be the customer, not because I need to pay for an account. I have this weird thing. No, no. no. Um, That's good. But if you were a corporation, you probably want some support, in which case you would probably opt, if you're a small corporation, the Teams product from GitHub, which gives you everything we get a little bit more, higher quotas on things, and better support. 
Or if you're a giant big corporation, you probably want, you know, you wanted to integrate with your Office 365, multi-sign-on and all that kind of stuff, in which case you're going to go for their enterprise offering and it's just going to tie into SSO and all that cool stuff. But, you know, GitHub cater for everyone from a hobbyist like us to an enterprise the size of someone like Intel or whatever. I mean, they have a package. It's kind of neat. They have all those different levels, not just free and paid, but exactly grows with you kind of stuff. And that's very much a theme you're going to see developing here because the other the other big contender is GitLab, right? So GitLab, as well as being the open source product, is also available as a hosted offering. And they, again, have a free tier, a premium tier. And because they needed something bigger than premium, they went with Ultimate, <laughs> which is basically the enterprise tier for, you know. For some reason, that know. reminds me of how they named the big telescopes. Right, yeah, because the the overwhelmingly large telescope, the owl, or owl overwhelmingly, yeah, the owl came after the BL, the B, VLT, very large telescope, very large telescope. We saw the VLT, I think, but then there's the overwhelmingly large, and (laughs) they've got all these names that they're just trying to make bigger names. They're hilarious. This is what this is what happens. Like you know, you know, micro USB. Oh, why did we make it smaller? So actually, no, mini came first, then we got micro. Actually, one of the nano and pico USB. Anyway, so so GitLab, that's kind of interesting. So you can set it up yourself on a server of your own, but you can also use it for free. But uh, even though it's on somebody else's on a server, okay, that's cool. Yeah, uh, and you know they're they're a good company. They're, they're a bit like Red Hat Enterprise Linux. They're they're a for profit company based around open source software. So they they contribute to the community and they turn a profit which helps everyone. So it's, yeah. it's one of those healthy open source examples. Okay. And then the other relatively recent entrant into the market is Azure DevOps from Microsoft. Hmm. Um, and there isn't, there is a, right, they have a basic and a basic plus tier. And really it's aimed at small companies or big companies. But if you, if you work in the Azure universe and you spend all of your professional life in there, and you want to do something for fun, you can create a basic Azure DevOps subscription and you get the first five users for free. So if your Tinkery project is less than five users, you can take the full-on corporate product and use it for free Hmm. in a personal capacity. I would say that Azure DevOps is a great option for people who use Azure DevOps in work and want to do what they already know when they're not in work. I would not recommend that. Yeah, exactly. I would. I, it is not a good fit for someone who's just tinkering around. It's really GitHub, I think, wins out because it's just a de facto standard. So you're going to get way more help. If you go on to Stack Overflow and ask a GitHub question, you get five million answers in two seconds. Because <laughs> that's just where the community is. I like where my questions are right now is they're they're small enough that I don't even get to ask the question because 458 people have asked that question and gotten the answer. Yeah, you're going to Google and the answer is already waiting for you in Stack Overflow and you just click the upvote so you get right. a little bit of juice. So, the, I mean, the, and that's just off the top of my head. They're the three options that I run into on a regular basis. Um, with my work hat on, um, we, we used to run our own GitLab self-hosted, so I have some experience running that. And we just decided the time had come for us not to spend our time running a Git server when we could just pay someone to do it for us. So we are now as your DevOps people. Oh, okay. It's, you know, my love of Microsoft. Um, <laughs> so there we are. Microsoft but again, I would recommend DevOps works for us because we're fully in the Office 365 Azure Active Directory area. I, I am not moving on my personal stuff onto DevOps. It's just, okay. 
you know, hammers, hammers for nails, screwdrivers for screws. My tool for the job. But as I say, the point I'm trying to make really is there's lots and lots and lots of offering. Now, when we talk about bells and whistles, right? So everything I mentioned there, right, whether you're hosting it, you know, all of those cloud hosted options, whether it's the free or the basic or whatever, they're all going to give you everything Git, right? Everything we've learned so far, you're going to get. They're also going to offer you more than that. Even the free options are going to give you options for documenting your code, like um, GitHub and GitLabs give you what they call GitHub or GitLab pages, which is basically a simple web server built into your Git repository. Um, GitHub will give you wikis so you can document in a different way. Uh, they will give you issue trackers so you can raise an issue on your project. Oh, so that's where that comes from. Okay. Yeah. So that's not a Git feature. That's a GitHub slash GitLab feature, right? And then some of them will go even further. Actually, both of them now for free give you what you know various automations that you can trigger whenever you do a commit. So Helma has set up one to check my spelling. I don't do very well. Um, I wish you, you guys know, could fun. see the face Bert just made. <laughs> not at Helma, at his spelling. No, just at my spelling. <laughs> at least there's no handwriting involved this day and age. Thank goodness. So even the free offerings give you those kind of advantages already by going cloud hosted. But if you go onto the higher up packages, you start to get really fancy tools where you get these advanced automation pipelines where when you do a push, it'll trigger your test suite and then your test suite will run all of your automated testing because you're doing test driven development. And then if it passes your test, it'll automatically deploy it to five staging servers and then it'll you know, put that live for half an hour and make sure it runs fine in the real world and then automatically deploy that to your production infrastructure. And all of this happens just because you did a git commit, you know, and you have all of these security valves in place that if it fails the test, it won't go out to production, but it might go to staging or whatever. And you can just automate all of these things. You have these massive workflows based off git. But again, that's when you're getting, that's why you're paying extra for the premium ultimate enterprise as your DevOps stuff, right? The reason it's called DevOps is because it's development and operations, right? And the acronym you'll often see for these things is CICD, Continuous Integration slash Continuous Development, CICD. Hmm. Basically automation, or automating the deployment of your code. And if you're a corporation... What did you say CICD that, stood for? Uh, continuous Integration, and I think it's continuous development but i'm not as sure on the second half of that i know it's ci is continuous integration the cd i might be wrong on okay i'm it's adding that to the show notes so people know what that cicd is yeah probably actually should link that to wikipedia i'm sure they'll have a definition they always do <laughs> that's usually what i link to in my show notes i don't know how i forgot that one um so, you know, if you're a corporation, you're going to have one of the prepaid plans because at the end of the day, the, the reason you're getting Git is because you make your money off your code somehow. So it's business critical. So you're going to want support, yada, yada, yada. But for a group of friends working together on something, to me, the high end stuff is overkill. Just go with GitHub. And like I say, that's <laughs> where we are. This, that's where, you know, all of this taming the terminal and programming by stealth, all brought to you by a GitHub free organization so and free account. You did say, and I don't think you've repeated it here, that that the other thing is that it really is kind of the standard for open source. Yeah, I was going to hammer that point home next week or okay. next install. 
but you're right. You're absolutely right. The, the, GitHub is where so, 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 so many open source projects are. Right. So why not go there for, for the kind of work exactly. that we're talking about here? Exactly. So really, the hard part isn't getting yourself some Git hosting. It doesn't even have to cost you anything, right? Mm-hmm. You don't even have to do any work yourself. You can just jump out of someone else's infrastructure. So really, the hard part is getting your team organized. And I would suggest that if you would like this to go smoothly, the correct time to make a whole bunch of decisions is before you start to use your shared repository. Don't get it up and running and then decide on what your coding style will be. Then decide on your development paradigm. Will we use test-driven development? Will we use something else? Don't start writing code and then decide how you're going to document it. Certainly don't start committing your stuff before you decide on your branching strategy. And really, if you're going to start committing anything, you should probably have some sort of policy in place for how you want to annotate your commits, you know, maybe conventional commits or something like that. And uh, before you start writing your code, you should probably know how you're going to number the bloody stuff. So I would say, of course, Semver. So right, when we talk about coding style, a lot of it comes down to the absolute bare basics. Do If four of us are going to be working together and three of us have our text editor set to use tabs and one of us to use spaces, every time three of us edit a line of code, it's going to be full of tabs. And every time the other person edits a line of code, it's going to be full of spaces. That's a giant, big, hot mess. This is when the band breaks up, though, when you have this conversation, right? <laughs> That's why I'm saying you don't have the conversation afterwards, because it never ends well when you have it afterwards. <laughs> if you have it afterwards, you end up making someone cranky because someone's going to lose. Or you make everyone cranky by picking a compromise that does, no one is happy with. Um, I am reminded of the width of the railway tracks in Ireland which is completely non-standard. So most of the world is either narrow gauge or broad gauge, and Ireland is Irish gauge. (laughs) Because they couldn't decide. (laughs) Right. They had built half the line from Dublin to Belfast on standard gauge and half the line on broad gauge. And they wanted to actually run one train service from Dublin to Belfast, the two biggest cities on the island. So if they picked standard gauge, then one company had to rip up all their tracks and incur a massive penalty, and they're all private companies. Or the other one would have to rip up all their tracks and incur a massive penalty. So the British Board of Trade stepped in, and they added the two wits together, divided by two, and went, both of you shall rip up all of your tracks, and you shall do Irish gauge. Now, a slightly smarter way would have been for to have only one rip it up, and the other one has to pay half of it. Absolutely. But then we couldn't get to have the wonderful trivia quiz that, you know, who else has the same width of tracks as us? The answer is India and Australia, because too many Irish engineers went abroad and took our stupid made up gauge with us. (laughs) So your trains can't even go someplace else if you could pick them up and move them. Correct. Uh, All of our trains look a bit weird because their wheels stick out too far. And that's because we buy standard bodies and then we stick Irish wheels underneath them. (laughs) And they're too wide. So you know the way like a boy racer takes a normal looking Honda Civic and then puts wider wheels on? Mm, We do that on all of our trains because otherwise (laughs) they won't fit on the rails. Okay, that's funny right there. There you go. So you pick a coding skull. And by the way, I have really good advice on this. Every programming language has either an official standard or a de facto standard. 
use the standard for the language you're programming in, and then you don't have to have a great big philosophical argument because you can just say, we're doing what's standard, and this way people can join and leave the team and no one has to relearn new skills. Actually, yeah, I was going to ask you, if I'm on five teams and one team uses spaces and one uses tabs, I've got to remember which one's which. But if all if one language stays the same. But you never told yeah. us in uh, learning JavaScript, what's the standard? I do believe, uh, way, way back at the start, I said that I was using KNR, which is the standard I, I use. I don't know what KNR is. Kernian and Ritchie. We, as I say, I'll dig up the installment number. We actually had a whole big philosophical conversation about where do the brackets go? Do the curly braces go at the end of the line or do they go at the start of the line? Oh, you got to decide well, that too. Well, you do. But as I say, the standard JavaScript coding scholars, they go on the end of the line like sane people. Um, the older languages, you tend to have more debates because people hadn't realized the importance of standards. So in C... You can make the argument there are many standards, and then you kind of have to choose. And then you're going to make somebody cranky because you haven't picked their pet style. But wait a minute. Spaces or tabs, Bart, in JavaScript? In JavaScript, pretty sure my browsers are all set to four spaces. Or my, um, I say my browsers, my... Your, your uh, editors? My VS four code. spaces? Yeah. Oh, jeez. I use two. Yeah, no, I can't stand eight. That's just... Wait, eight? Code. Well, a tab is normally eight spaces, right? No, you can set it to whatever you want. Right, but the default, if you open up a copy of Windows as standard, you open up Notepad and you hit the tab key, it goes over eight. Why on earth would I ever have opened Notepad, Bart? <laughs> in my entire life, when would that have ever happened? They what don't I'm, get to I'm declare the is... standard in that piece of poop. <laughs> <laughs> the average, then. So this is the conversation the that we would have as a something. team. <laughs> exactly. So my approach is always, if I'm writing Perl, I follow the Perl rules. If I'm writing JavaScript, I follow the JavaScript conventions. If I'm writing Java, I do things the Java way. And that just gets rid of all the problems. So the way and you do that usually, is in your code editor, you set up that if you hit the tab, how far does it go? Or no? Yes, but I do it with a little bit of help. So my approach is to use what's called a linter for the appropriate language. So... In JavaScript, the, 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 the winner of the linting wars is, is an open source project called ESLint. And ESLint is compatible with most modern editors. And you basically, by default, ESLint configures things a certain way and it has some configuration variables. So you can have a .eslint file at the root of your project. And if you have a .eslint file, then you put that into your repository and then automatically everyone's editor will be using the same rules because the rules are coming from the .eslint file. And then so you can I do have, have a, a suggestion. If you're going yes. to do that, do it before anybody writes a single line of code. Because bing, bing, bing. because I had a play date with uh, Helma where she talked me into trying ESLint. I'm really glad I was able to roll back my code because it broke everything. everything. It was disastrous so i would never i mean my, now i have like i would never use a linter was my reaction but now thinking about it with this okay if i had it up front okay fine i'll do that the time to start using a linter is on day one not when you have thousands of lines of code yeah. because depending on the linter it will have strong opinions when i write Perl, i use a linter called Perl critic and it wasn't named Perl critic because it's very passive it's pretty <laughs> darn critical <laughs> like it is very, very opinionated. Um, 
And so if you try, if you have a few thousand lines of code and you throw Perl Critic at it, it will give you so many errors. So I would generally say you start your linter at the start of your project, which is what I'm saying here, right? We decide these things up front. Okay, good. The next thing is you're going to have to decide, are we doing test-driven development or not? If we are, well, then we have to write our tests before we write our code. So we should all be doing that because we need to have all those tests there or we can't do our automatic deployment, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, so you know, need- Wil- Wilbur's never going to do it anyway, though. You're still going to have to write his test for him. You know how he is, right? <laughs> Again, you know, we're into the human problem there. <laughs> The other thing is, how are you going to document your code? If you have multiple, like if you write code yourself, I I write really copious documentation for code I write purely for me because I know I am going to benefit from it because future me is very forgetful. Present me knows what I'm talking about, so I should really leave myself an FYI because I will need to know and I won't remember. But if you're working as part of a team, you're not putting something to remember the other people didn't know what you knew. You didn't have a, br- a mind meld with them. Mm-hmm. So you actually genuinely do have to document your functions. And so you need to have a standard strategy. And that could be as simple as a text expander snippet that is a template you all agree on. But in reality, there's much better options. There are tools for automatically building documentation from specially formatted comments. Every language has their own standard or de facto standard. So Java had an actual standard released by Sun Microsystems called JDoc. And it was such a good standard, pretty much everyone copied it. So for enterprise, for modern version of JavaScript, we have ESDoc, which uses the same syntax as JDoc. There was also a JSDoc for earlier versions of JavaScript. And now the new fangled kit on the block is document.js, but it uses exactly the same syntax. So again, you just need to agree what you're doing. And then if everyone's doing the same thing, then you can all read each other's code. And another really good reason to use the JSDoc, ESDoc syntax is that code editors like VS Code understand those comments too. So when you hover your mouse over a function name, it can read the doc comment and give you documentation and the tooltip. That's very cool. It is very cool. I'm impressed and by how you do write your comments. I've seen where you're you're still thinking it up and you write it up in a commenty in a commenty way first and that tells you mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um I never know yeah. what I'm doing though, is you know, at the beginning. I don't know much. So I I haven't successfully done that yet. Well in the real world, so with my work hat on, I will always, always, always write my doc comments at the top of my function first. And usually the act of writing that comment will tweak the actual function before I've written it. So I'll say to myself, you know, I'm going to write a function called, you know, whatever with four arguments. And I'll, you know, I'll write, you know, function, name of function, open bracket, name of four arguments, close bracket. And then I'll go up and fill in the doc comment. And as I'm actually writing in English what the function does, I'll suddenly find myself going, oh, no, I don't need four. I actually only need these three. Or, ooh, I actually need a reference to this, so I actually need five. And just the act of writing the comment solidifies in my brain how the function should actually work. And so when I'm finished documenting it, then it actually becomes a very mechanical task to just implement it. Because I've already told myself what it's going to do, so then I just make it so. Hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, we'll see. <laughs> Different people probably work differently, but that is definitely how my brain works. So I I get great benefit from documenting first. 
The other thing we've talked about in massive detail in installment 107 is your branching strategy. You're going to have multiple people working on the same code base. So you really do need to be religious about creating dev branches, giving those dev branches some sort of sensible name based on some sort of agreed upon policy, because otherwise you're going to have this sea of branches and you're not going to know what they are. But if you name them clearly, then you will. Okay. You should also have some sort of standardized approach for the commit messages you put onto your commits because everyone else is going to be reading them too. And so they actually do need to make sense to people. So again, putting my work hat on, if we are doing something based on a call in our call tracker, we absolutely positively put the call number into the commit message. A lot of the stuff we, we version in work isn't strictly speaking code as config files. So if you're changing a firewall rule, if you just say C surface desk ticket number 531, that saves you writing an essay in the commit message. Oh, just okay. go read the call. Like, Why do we do this? Oh, because someone so in French needed such and such. Right. Okay. It's, but whatever it is, you should all be working off the same page. And I would definitely suggest picking something like conventional commit so that you prefix it with, you know, bug, colon, fix, colon, whatever. But agree it so that everyone can look at the Git log and understand what's going on. And then if you're going to have software with version numbers, well, decide up front how you're going to do that. Are you going to go the Microsoft style and call it after the month of the year? Or are you going to do something sensible like Semver? But whatever it is, pick something and stick to it. And you definitely want to pick that before you release your version 1.0. Because what does it even mean to be a version 1.0 if you haven't decided on your strategy? So do you find that you can really get people to do this, all these things? Yes. Who is but the it, who is the the commandant who who beats people me. when they don't? Oh, okay. <laughs> but it, it probably does take someone with a reasonably forceful uh personality or, you know, with influence power at least to do that. Assert you need to be assertive. And it really, 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 really helps to never do things because I say so. If you are going into a meeting like that and your best ammunition is because I say so, you are going to actually lose or effectively lose. Either everyone's going to be so cranky at you, they're not going to give you their best, or you're just going to lose in the meeting and right. come out not getting Better. your way. Okay. So my approach is always, we should do it based on best practices. I have done my research. These are best practices, and here's where here's the source for that. And here's the, and here's what the benefits are to our team. What the problem we're trying to solve, and this is how it solves it in a way that lots of smart people have figured out before. Exactly. And when you come into a meeting with that approach, it's really hard to argue with you. Okay. And you'll generally find that the smarter people on the team, the people who you really want to contribute most, are going to be 110% on your page because they want to do things by the book, too. Okay. So if you come in arguing for Semver, you're going to get a lot further than arguing for Bart's custom versioning number based on the phase of the moon. <laughs> I'm just picturing teams where, you know, you've got 12 people and 11 of them will do it. And Wilbur's yeah. over there just making up commit messages with uh, phases of the moon in it. Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, how you deal with that depends on the context. If it's a bunch of friends, you just merciless ribbing until they, you know, get in line. And if it's at work, well, then you have procedures for that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So, you know, again, it depends on context. But again, humans, right? Git is not going to solve the problem of humans working together. It's just a great tool to help humans work together. But you still need to be good at, you know, conflict resolution, listening to each other, collaborating. I mean, one of the big things I say is if someone writes you in a text-only medium and there are two ways of interpreting it, a malicious way and an innocent way, assume the innocent way unless absolutely forced otherwise. Yeah, that's good advice. I should have a post-it note next to my computer that says that. Keep remembering that. (laughs) Oh, I forget it all the time, but I usually catch myself before I hit send. (laughs) You know, talk about the human problem when my kids were little, uh, uh, and they were in, you know, junior high or something, you know, seven, eight, ninth grade, and they'd get put on a team. They have to do a team project. And they would just, you know, there was always that deadbeat that wasn't doing any of the work. There are four people, three of them working, one of them doing nothing. And my kids would just get so angry about it. And I said, trust me, this is the most valuable skill you will learn in school. Literally the, the most best. real world skill. Yeah. Right, right. And Group it's work. horrible. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Figuring out how to get that deadbeat to do the work they should do or work around them. That's going to be what you need to know. That'll stand to you more than anything else you've learned in school this year. Yeah. Right. Um, of all those six things I mentioned, five of them are very difficult to fix after the fact. They basically incur massive amounts of technical debt. If you have five lines of code written and you change your mind on one of them, not a big problem. If you have 5,000 lines of code written, problem. You have to rewrite lots and lots of code. So the technical debt builds up and up and up. The oddball, the exception to the rule, is your branching strategy. Hmm. You can finesse your branching strategy. If you have a strategy and all it's doing is confusing everyone and causing lots of merge conflicts, well, you can finesse it. And you haven't, it doesn't matter because branches come and go. Oh, right, so right, right. They just start coming and going in a different way. So of the, the one that you should, you know, by all means, don't intentionally get it wrong but the one you should expect to finesse over time is a branching strategy and all the rest of them you really do want to you know decide and then stick to and in terms of the branching strategy i would generally say avoid having multiple human beings working on the same branch at the same time unless they're actually working together on a single piece of work okay two people trying to figure something out together yes then they should be on the same branch but if Bob and Alice are working on a new, you know, form of some sort on one page of your website, and Tony and Doris are working on a new look for the shopping cart, why are they on the same branch? If your policy says they should be, your policy's wrong. They should not be causing merge conflicts for each other. They should yeah. each of those pairs should be off on their own branch working away in peace. Okay. And then have, have those merge conflicts at the end. Exactly, exactly. When both of you have, when both teams or sub teams have a piece of work that's ready to be merged into master, sorry, main, then deal with any conflicts that may have been created. But you shouldn't be having to deal with those conflicts over and over and over and over again, because four of you are sharing the same branch for no good reason. Right, right. That's definitely a case that the whole point of branching is to stop this kind of stuff working together. Um. The other thing, all right, so that that sort of takes care of the before you get started. Then once you're working as a team, my biggest piece of advice is fetch early and fetch often. If you're not fetching, now thankfully the GUI clients do it for you all the time, so you immediately see those arrows, right? You saw that you've seen that happening yourself right. all the time. 
But if you're on the command line, those arrows wouldn't appear. You would have to do git space fetch. Oh, right. And right. then you would see stuff changing. Mm-hmm. So fetch early and fetch often, whether that be automatically through a GUI or manually on the command line. Because if you're not fetching, you're not seeing what your colleagues are doing, right? You are just off on this little island universe of your own where there's all these other commits happening and you're not seeing them. So when you're on the command line and you fetch, do you actually see the changes? You don't see the changes. You do, actually. It tells you everything it fetched. So it will tell you that it fetched, you know, four commits on main and four commits on whip. And it'll, it'll actually list what it's fetched. With the, with the messages? With the commit messages? Uh, you may need to do a git log or whatever to see the messages, but it will definitely tell you which branches it's in the process of updating. So if you have well-named branches, you're going to see that, oh, yeah, there's five updates from Bob and Alice who are working on, you know, dev-newform. And there's two commits from Joanne, who's working on dev dash new finance. Right, but what good does report? it do to me to know that they've done those commits if I don't see? I, I mean, I do a fetch. But you can so choose what? to see them. You can you can use Git log to read their descriptions. Right, and stuff. but you're saying you're saying fetch early and fetch often to make sure you 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 know what they're doing. You don't really know what they're doing instead unless you merge those or unless you, you know, do you the don't git, merge them. No, no, no. Well, you unless don't you do the, the Git logs. Right. So exactly. But merging just means that you're adding them into your local branch. You don't have to add them in to see. You can just describe the different commits, right? You now have the commits cached so you, locally. So don't just, don't just fetch. Fetch and look at the logs of what everybody else but is depends. doing. Right. The fetch is going to tell you what it fetched. So if you have a good branching strategy, then you have your, you, you have your periphery. Think of it as situational awareness, right? You're aware that there is a car next to you. Mm-hmm. unless you have a reason to figure out whether that's an SUV or not, you don't have to figure out whether that's an SUV or not. But if you don't even have the situational awareness that there are five things being worked on today, then you don't know whether you care. But I just know that Sharika is in that car next to me and she's doing yeah. stuff. And I know yeah. she's in this branch, but I don't know what, yeah. what, what good does it do me to just know that she did stuff on another branch unless I dig in and spend time studying what she did. Well, I can't tell if it affects me. It doesn't really give me any awareness, does it? Well, it does if you have a good branching strategy where you can actually tell something based on the branches. You're working as part of a team, right? You're not working in a complete vacuum here. If you were working without any other form of communication other than Git, you would have to go read every commit message. But what I'm saying is if you're not fetching, you're not getting your peripheral vision. It's like driving without your your no, wing I, mirrors and your rear view mirror. I, I understand what you're trying to tell me. I just don't see how I've really got any information. All So by by a good branching strategy, you mean having a name to the branch. So, right, and so it says reasons. it says PBS 116 whip and it's got right. a seven you know next I'm to it. On the next installment. And then I fetch and now it says eight. I don't have any more information than I had before. Tomorrow I look and it says 12. I don't have any more information. You know whether or not there's anything happening. You know whether or not they start prodding me because the show's in two hours and there hasn't been any work done. If Helma's in fixing a whole bunch of typos, she'll be working off on another branch. You're going to see that that work is going on. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the, the Helma one's a good example because I was flabbergasted when I went to push the show once and all of a sudden Helma had been working while we were recording. I was like, well, I don't know what to do. But of course, everything was fine. Yeah, so, you know, so as I say, it's knowing what you need to go look at is what I mean by your situational awareness, right? And again, it's kind of hard to be specific because it's, it's going to depend on your situation, your team, et cetera. But if you don't even know that there's something to know, how can you know? 
Right. Okay. <laughs> I got you. Um, the other thing I would say is be considerate when you push, right? Because pushing is merging. So if you have code you know is broken, why would you push that onto a colleague's lap? Like if your colleague is pulling often and you're there pushing stuff you know is broken, what you've basically done is gone and given them a dud intentionally. So, you know, be, don't push inconsiderately. And really, at the end of the day, what's actually probably the best advice is what you and I do all the time. Um, have a mode of communication outside of Git, like Slack or Teams or Discord or Telegram or whatever. Because at the end of the day, you're a team of human beings working together with Git as a tool that you're sharing. But it's just a tool. So talk to each other. So let's say I've got a laptop and a desktop and I'm working on some code with you on GitHub. And mm -hmm. I've been mucking about on my laptop and it's completely broken. But now I need to go work on my desktop. I have to push mm -hmm. that broken code. Well, you could push it to a temporary branch called Allison Don't Touch. Oh, I'd still have it in a branch. Yeah. But I could, so I can right. push it. I can't, don't, don't merge it into main is what you mean. Well, it depends, right? So if, if four of you are sharing a dev branch and you're, and you're being forced because an emergency okay. sharing a dev branch. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking you're, we're on different branches. You're right. But that's what I'm saying. Be considerate when you push, right? When you push, am I going to affect only me? If the answer to that question is yes, well, then you're not being inconsiderate because. Okay. So if I'm on my own branch that I, has not been merged back into main, I can push garbage. Whatever you like. Okay. But if, but if you and me are working together on something on a branch and an emergency has come up, something's happened, you have to leave and you know the code is broken, don't push into the branch I'm using with you because then you've just dropped a turd on me. <laughs> Make a new branch called Allison Emergency or, you know, Allison Auga, whatever. Mm-hmm and push it to there Got so it. that it's nice and safe and in the cloud and you haven't pushed it onto me. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Be considerate, you know. Um, but really, it's a human issue, right? It's all down to the human. So be good humans. Be considerate to each other. Be kind to each other. Cliche, cliche, cliche. So the final thing I want to end on is a question I'm going to answer. So what's the difference between the open source community and working on a team? Well, at the end of the day, it's a very simple answer. On a team, everyone can commit code. On the open source world, the maintainers can commit code straight into the open source project. They're basically the team. But on open source, you want to accept contributions from anyone on planet Earth, but they need to go through some sort of gating process. Because you can't have random Joe Soap pushing a change straight into the Linux kernel. And so that gating process involves wrapping something around Git to somehow put a process in place to control the flow of changes. At the end of the day, you're submitting commits and they are getting merged in. But you can't just grant randomers on the planet the full right to just push their changes. So you need some sort of workflow. And from day one, Git was designed to be extensible. So we have been using Git through the Git command line. But the Git command line is actually the secondary implementation of Git. 
what's really truly Git is a collection of libraries. And the command line uses those libraries to give you an interface. But those libraries can be used inside other apps. So when you're developing your own fancy pants editor, you can just include Git functionality into your editor. But there's no reason you only do what Git does by default. You can add extra features by leveraging Git's basic features. So GitHub does everything Git does, and it has a bunch of UI buttons that do more than what basic Git does because Git, GitHub have built their website using the Git libraries, and then they've added on some features of their own. And the And they've added on some features of their own is key to solving the open source problem. Because the features they've added on are exactly the features designed to allow you to have this kind of a gated workflow. Okay. And Which, again, it's on, beyond Git, right? It's Git plus, right? Okay. It's it actually under the hood, it's actually using Git pieces, but it's assembled them into a different Lego, you know, normal Git gives you a house and they've gone and made a fire station. <laughs> right? They've used all the right piece the same pieces, but they've done extra. And to you and I as a user, those extras present themselves as extra buttons on the Git interface that don't align to commands we come across on the command line. And they have a workflow for contributing to open source. And the workflow can best be described as fork edit pull request. So you, and we're going to go through this in detail next time, right? But basically you go to the open source page on GitHub, you fork it, you make some changes, and then you offer those changes to the project through something called a pull request. And then the project can choose to accept your changes or not. Or they can choose to half accept them. They can cherry pick the bits they want. Or they can even put them into a temporary branch, make some edits, and then merge them in after they have you know, made your code align with their standards or conventions. Maybe you use spaces instead of tabs and they wanted it the other way. Well, they can tweak it and then accept it into the project. Okay. Okay. We're going to talk about that in detail, right? We're going to talk about that. That is basically the last piece of the puzzle here for us to learn on this Git journey is GitHub. So for the first time, right, what makes next time different is that it's not Git anymore. It's GitHub. Okay. Okay. That's why I wanted to leave that right to the end. Everything we've learned so far is generic. Mm-hmm. That stops being true now. Now we go to the plus. So now right. we move on to GitHub, and specifically, we're going to look at forking a project, making some edits, and then offering those back through what's called a pull request. And there is actually going to be an assignment or a challenge next time. Ah. And in order to complete that challenge, you're going to need to have a GitHub account, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a GitHub repository called PBS Gallery. And I'm going to invite all of our listeners to submit their sample solutions that they're most proud of to any of our previous challenges as a pull request into the gallery. Oh, it's funny. I, I wrote I wrote a post-it note here while we were chatting, <laughs> and I was thinking, what if we created a document, uh, just like an HTML document, and people could could edit and add what I learned from PBS or what I what I like about PBS or something like that, where we'd have a little web page that would say what people thought. That would work too, but I do kind of I've been meaning to have a gallery for some yeah. time. This yeah, no, I like part. that. I like that. So there we go. So as I say, we will use that as a practical way to put our skills to the test next time. 
So it's time so to sign gonna... up for a GitHub account right now when you hear this. I'm sign up for exactly. It is free, as in free, actually, beer, everything. It's, yeah, good stuff. So anyway, until then, and as I say, a very, very strange installment, this one. Not a single line of code entered, not, not a single <laughs> command issued, but nonetheless, I hope it was useful. I and anyway, good. So all that remains to say is until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.